Appreciate it. The leather looks good, just the rest of it don't, right? Amen. I'm with you. I'm with you. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue on with a, a message series that we began a couple, three weeks ago. And we're going to actually finish our study uh, from Luke chapter 16 that looks at two men and their deaths. Now, I know that death is never pleasant to talk about. Death is never even pleasant to think about. Amen? That's right. But much of our uncertainty comes because of misconceptions we have about what happens when we die. A lot of things we just don't know, and so we need to base our thoughts and our conceptions on what the Word of God says, not on what the rest of the world says. Now, three weeks ago, I began this series entitled, Eternity, What Awaits You After You Die? And then last week, we looked at the fate of a beggar. A beggar named Lazarus and a message entitled, Heaven, It's Even Better Than You Think. And I think that if you were here, you probably found out that you would agree that that is much better than what we think. But today we're going to turn to this rich man's destiny in a message entitled, Hell. It's real and it ain't funny. Amen? Back in January of 2000, the U.S. News and World Report uh, took a survey that revealed that 64% of Americans believe that there is a hell. But what's surprising is that a poll that was taken shortly thereafter revealed that more Americans believe in hell today than they did back in the 1950s. They actually believe it more. The debate, therefore, is not if hell exists, the debate lies in what it is, where it is, and how long it lasts. Now, I've discovered that people have some really crazy ideas about this place we call hell. Let me just give you a sampling about what some of the cults teach about hell. Scientology, with supporters like John Travolta and Tom Cruise, they teach uh, that there is no death, that uh, they experience their own heaven or their own hell right here on earth. Mormons will argue this. They argue that eternal, eternal punishment for sin is not only unreasonable, but it's revolting. Jehovah's Witnesses maintain that the wicked are simply wiped out. They're just wiped out, completely destroyed, and they hold that a teaching about a fiery hell is the teaching of demons. Now, I don't know what book they read, but I know what book it's not, amen? So what is hell? Today, I want to give you quickly five common views about hell. The first of which is outright denial. There's outright denial. Some people say there ain't no such place. There's no such place as hell. They say it's only a story that's meant to frighten people into coming to church. It's only a, a story that's meant to frighten people to do what the church says. They say hell really doesn't exist. But think about this for a second. If there's no hell, then there's no heaven. Because in the Bible, Jesus has much more to say about hell than he does about heaven. 
In fact, in the Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus mentions hell 56 times and heaven just 24 times. Therefore, we can't reject hell unless we're also rejecting Christ because he's the one that spoke of the truth of its existence. And if hell is not as real, if hell is not as bad as what the Bible says it is, then logic would dictate that heaven is not as real or as good as the Bible says it is. So first, there is outright denial about hell. Second, there is also some people that believe that hell is just earthly suffering. They believe that hell is just the bad things you go through when you're here on earth. Third, is a belief that hell is annihilation. That is the belief that hell refers to the, direct, the, the complete destruction of all evil people. There's a fourth common belief, a belief in restoration, a belief that everyone will ultimately be saved. But think about it. If everyone is ultimately going to make it to heaven, then what we're doing here at Bethel, Bethel Baptist Church is just a waste of our time. We might as well shut the doors and go to the house. But friends, hell is real. It is real, and sadly, not everyone's going to make it to heaven. The only option that's supported by the Bible, the only option that's supported by Scripture, is the belief that hell is a real place of eternal suffering. But have you ever heard this question? How could a good God send someone to hell? If you heard that question, raise your hand. We've all heard that. Well, I don't have enough time to cover that subject completely, but I'll ask this. Why would a good judge send a serial killer to the electric chair? Why don't we ask that question? The answer is this. Because the judge is not the one responsible for him going to the electric chair. His own choices make him responsible for the punishment. But here in Luke chapter 16 in the Bible, Jesus tells the story of the lives, the deaths, and also the destinies of two men. And as both of these men died, this amazing reversal took place. The poor man who has very little in this life died and was immediately carried by the angels into God's presence and his faith is rewarded with eternity in heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, who had so much in this life, he also died. And a split second later, he awoke in a terrifying place called hell. It's through the experiences of this rich man that Jesus gives us just a glimpse into what hell is like. It's brief, but friend, let me tell you, it's powerful. It's powerful enough to destroy all these other misconceptions about hell. So let's read it again in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Follow along with me. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. What's that mean? He ate good. He ate good. Amen. But there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the rich man's gate. 
desiring merely to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Another meaning for what? Heaven, exactly. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23. And being in torments in hell, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his lap. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember. Say remember. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received all your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to come from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them that they may come, not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. That is, they have the Bible. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes from them to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said, if they don't hear the Bible, they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though one rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord above, I thank you for giving us evidence of the truth. Father, help us to do what we must do and make the right choice, make the right decision so that we'll be with you instead of this awful place. In Jesus' name, and all people said, Amen. Today, I want to share with you three important things that I find this passage says about hell. First, I think it's clear to see that hell is a place of misery. Hell is a place of misery. Verse 23 says that the rich man is in torment. He's suffering. And in verse 24, we find him begging for even the smallest amount of water to relieve his suffering. And he says of himself, I am tormented in this flame. Verse 25, Abraham uses that word, tormented, to describe this man's condition in hell. And then in verse 27 and 28, this rich man begs, begs to warn his family about this place, that they will not come to this place of torment. I read this story about an evangelist who was urging the people to flee from this wrath to come. I warn you, he thundered, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And suddenly this old woman stood up and said, but sir, I have no teeth. And he said, don't worry, ma'am, teeth will be provided. Wow. Some people have been trying to tell us for decades that hell is nothing but symbolism. They try to tell us that the Bible says, what the Bible says about hell is just symbolic, but it's just not true. So is this fire that's spoken of, is it literal or symbolic? Well, if you think about it, 
Most of the times, a figure of speech is less intense than the reality. So, if fire is just a figure of speech, if fire is just symbolism, then it probably stands for some great reality. And if the reality is more intense than the, than the speech, friend, what an awful punishment it must be. Wow. But you know, this is not the only place that the Bible speaks about hell. In the parable of the talents, the Lord Jesus describes hell as this, a place of outer darkness. And in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 24, He's finishing this parable of the talents, and he says, Then he who received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, here is what is yours. But the Lord answered and he said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so that you ought to deposit my money with the bankers. And at the, my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take that talent from him. Give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. He who has an abundance from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Get this. And cast that unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be there weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I read that, I found it difficult to imagine a place of fire where there's no light. Anytime you see fire, you see light. I found it equally difficult to imagine a place of darkness that had such intense heat. It didn't make sense to me. Usually I associate darkness with cold. But then I read about people who work in the deep mines far underground. Not only is there total darkness in those mines, but there's also insufferable heat. Heat so extreme that the workers can only stay down there for a couple of minutes at a time. At a depth of only three kilometers, less than three miles, The temperature in these mines rises to 158 degrees. So you see, it is possible to have unending heat in total darkness. In verse 24, the rich man begged for even a small drop of water to ease his suffering. Erwin Lutzer points out this. It's the most sobering thought about this story is that this rich man... This rich man that was wanting this one drop of water, this rich man still is begging for this one drop of water to ease his suffering. But you know, hell is not just a place of misery. Hell is also a place of memory. Beyond the fact that that hell is a, a place of constant and conscious misery, we also see that it's a place of memory. It's a place of profound regret. Look in verse 25 back in Luke 16 where Abraham said to that rich man, son, remember. Remember. 
Those two words probably describe the most horrifying part of being in hell. Memory. Memory. This brings to light what I shared a couple of messages ago, where Erwin Letzer says in his book, One Minute After You Die, that hell is a place that's shrouded in darkness. It's a place where all of its inhabitants are deprived of anything good. It's a place where all who are there are overwhelmed with unending regret. With all their memories and feelings totally intact, images of their life on earth return to haunt them. They think back to their friends. They think back to their family. They think back to their relatives. And they brood over the opportunities they squandered because they know that their future is hopeless. They know that their future is unending. You see, for them, death is far worse than they ever imagined. But in today's verses, the mind of this rich man is likely filled with images of poor Lazarus laying at his doorstep while stray dogs were licking his wounds. But I'll bet he remembers those who tried to tell him about God. I'll bet that he remembers some of the sermons he heard. I'll bet that he remembers those who were trying to warn him about the coming judgment. Friend, there's no torment greater than a haunting memory. It's impossible to forget in hell. Remember, that rich man couldn't take any of his money, but golly, he sure could take his memory. No way out. Can't get out of hell. When you're there, you're there forever. Now some teach that you can work your way out of hell once you go there. And it would certainly be a wonderful thing, but it's not true. It's impossible. You can't get a transfer. You can't cross over to the other side. Abraham explains that there is a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. In other words, there's no hope of crossing over from one side to the other. Hell is not like prison. Hell is not like prison where you might get paroled with good behavior. Hell is not like prison where you might get pardoned by the governor or that you might simply do your time and then get released. No, hell is forever and it's inescapable and there are no second chances. God won't change his mind. The Bible says that this great chasm is fixed. It's permanent. And it cannot change. So this story makes it clear to me that those who go to hell are without hope. And their fate is sealed forever. In hell, it's too late to pray. It's too late to change. It's too late to repent. In the book, Dante's Inferno, hell is described in graphic detail. Much of the book is based on speculation, just someone's imagination as to what hell might be like. But there is one thing that's in full agreement with the Bible. Near the very beginning of that book, 
the main character sees this sign before the entrance of hell. And that sign says, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. How horrible is that? The tragedy of having no hope is difficult for me to imagine. But to miss the greatest opportunity of all, to miss the opportunity to go to heaven, that's got to be awful. But then, to not only miss it forever, but to know that you missed it forever. Now that is horrible indeed. Surely, one of the most fearful horrors of hell is that undying memory of what could have been. Wow. But hell is not only a place of misery, and it's not only just a place of memory. Hell is also a place of mourning. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 27. But then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I got five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if one would go to them from the dead, oh, they'll repent then. But he said to them, If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, even though somebody rises from the dead. You know, one thing I don't see with the rich man, I don't see him partying with all of his friends. He's very much alone. He didn't say, man, I'm so glad my brothers are coming. I can't wait till they get here. We're going to have fun when my brothers get down. No, not at all. Hell's not going to be this giant lounge where we talk about our escapades on earth in between drinks. No. Hell will be a place of mourning. But you know, Ted Turner, the owner of Turner Broadcasting, he often spoke for this kind of attitude. He once said this. He said, remember, heaven's going to be perfect. And I don't really want to be there. He said, most of us in this room are going to be there together. And he started laughing. And then he said, but when we get to hell, we're going to have a chance to make things better. Because, you know, hell is supposed to be a mess. And heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring, 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 he said. And he laughed some more. He's going to learn that hell will be a place of mourning. Somebody's got to warn these people. Somebody's got to warn them. Warn them of the danger. Can I tell you they're relying on you to tell them? You have family who's headed there. You got friends that are headed there. There are people even that you hate who are headed there. Have you once 
told them that they have an option? Have you once shared with them that they don't have to go to that awful place of misery and memory and mourning? Let me summarize what we learned from Luke 16 about the afterlife. First of all, the dead are still alive. I know that sounds like a paradox, but both Lazarus and the rich man survived their own funerals. That's right. We think that this is the land of the living, but in all actuality, this is the land of the dying. When we die, we wake up to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. Number two, not only are the dead still alive, but the dead retain their personalities. The dead retain their essential character. Did you notice? Lazarus is still Lazarus. The rich man is still the rich man. And even in hell, this rich man could still see Even in that place of torment, he could still hear. He could certainly feel the heat. Amen. The rich man could still recognize. The rich man could certainly remember. He could still speak. In hell, he could still reflect. In hell, he could still beg. In hell, he could certainly suffer. And even down there, he could even think ahead to what was coming. There was only one thing he couldn't do. He couldn't get out. He couldn't cross over. He couldn't stop the torment. So death involves a choice. And the dead are still alive and the dead retain their personalities, but death also marks a final separation between the saved and the lost. Once you're in heaven, you're always in heaven. And once you're in hell, you're always in hell. No one can pass from one to the other. There's a great gulf fixed. The last thing I think we can learn is this. Hell is real, but you don't have to go. Hell is real. But you don't have to go. Hell can be avoided if a person will listen to the word of God and do what God asks. Once again, obedience to God, Brother Chad. We were talking about this in Sunday school. Obedience to God is for our own benefit. He wants the very best for us. And if we'll just follow, if we'll just obey, we'll receive his very best. I read one day, when Vice President Calvin Coolidge was presiding over the Senate, one senator angrily told another senator, you go straight to hell. And that senator came up to Calvin Coolidge and was complaining to him. 
And Calvin Coolidge wittingly replied, I've looked through the rule book, and you don't have to go. You don't have to go. The truth is this. God loves you, and he doesn't want you to go there. In fact, did you know that hell was never intended for human habitation? That's not why it was made. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, get this, prepared for Satan and his demons. That's who hell was prepared for. Hell was prepared for Satan and his followers, not for people. But as C.S. Lewis said, any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it, the promise is, they will have it. For there are only two kinds of people in the end. There is one who says to God, thy will be done. And there is the other who God says to, okay, your will be done. All who, who go to hell, choose it. They choose it. Whether it be through a lack of decision or rejection of the Savior. We often hear people say, how could a loving God allow any of his creatures to suffer unending misery? That's a good question, isn't it? The answer is this. God loves you so much that he's going to respect your decision. He loves you so much, but you know what? He's not going to force his love on you. He's not going to force you to love him. Because if he forced us to love him, well, that wouldn't be love at all, would it? We'd be like a robot doing his bidding. But we're not. No, God allows us to decide. He loves us. He encourages our response to his love. He pursues us. He even urges us. But friend, he will not force us to love him. He loves you enough to allow you to make your own decision. I know this is not the most favorite subject matter that we have as Christians. But you know what? It also reminds me of God's love for me and what he has prepared for those who will follow him, place their faith in him. So if he loves you enough for you to make a decision, I ask you today, have you made that decision? Will you make that decision? Father, thank you for your infinite, incredible, never-failing, unfathomable love that you have for your people. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that no one would perish, that no one would go to this awful place that the Word of God speaks about so clearly. Lord, if there's a single person who does not have 
the absolute assurance that when they pass from this life, they'll be with you and not in this awful place. Lord, help them to know they can make that decision today. They can just step out of their pew and take a step of faith. Allow me just to show them what the Word of God says about how people can be saved from their sin and be assured of eternal life in a glorious place called heaven with you for all eternity. Lord, they know the decision's up to them. Now, Lord, I pray that you would urge them to make the decision for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people of God said, prayer during this and during this song you've got a decision to make you just come on up here I'm going to show you weak what the says. and wounded sinner lost and left to die I'll raise your head for love is passing by and come to Jesus come to Jesus Come to Jesus and live. Now your burdens lifted and carried far away, and precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus. Jesus and live and like a newborn baby don't be afraid to crawl and remember when you walk sometimes you fall so fall on Jesus fall on Jesus fall on Jesus Sometimes the way is lonely and steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus and live. Spills over and music fills the night. And when you can contain your joy inside, dance with Jesus, dance with Jesus, dance with Jesus.
Jesus. Amen.